And we look at them as sophisticated adults just smiling at them and don't realize that's how God sees us. We're not so sophisticated in his eyes. We may be sophisticated in one another's eyes. We may, you know, know where to stand and where to put our hands and how to smile and open our mouth and sing with each other. But you get in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're not all that sophisticated. And aren't you glad that therefore he sees us as his kids? He smiles and is pleased at your effort to find the right place to stand in. And when you don't quite know where to put your hands, he, 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 he smiles at your effort, even at your nervousness, because he loves you. He's proud of you. We judge our performance, but he's your father, and he loves you. And he sees you through the eyes of a father who loves, and, and, and he, he doesn't want to see us stay as little children. He wants to see us grow. But at each step stage of that growth, he looks at you as your father, and he's proud of your efforts. He's proud of your, of your you know, if he could sit here and take pictures of you, he would, because I saw parents taking pictures. And why do they do that? Because they're proud of their child, and, and seeing their child do things for God. Well, your heavenly father's proud of you this morning. I just in my spirit to say this. He's proud of you this morning. And we, again, we, we you know, we, we, com- we compare ourselves to the, the ones that have been around longer. And, the, and God just looks at you and smiles at you. Says, that's my little girl. That's my little boy. I love them. Look what they're doing. Turns to the angels and say, see how good a job they're doing? Oh, I know their knees got skinned last week. And I know that there's a little dirt behind their ears and they didn't get that this morning. And I know that. But look, look, look at them. Look at them trying. He's your father. He loves you. He's not sitting there waiting for the next time you stumble or fall and saying, see, I told you so. He believes in you because he believes in what he's doing in you and what he's done in you. Praise God. Well, that was worth the price of admission right there. I need to hear that. <laughs> if you didn't. Praise the Lord. Turn with me this morning, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. We're continuing in our study. We're winding it down, actually, believe it or not. Our study on who Jesus is. We saw back in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the question of his disciples, Who do, who do, you, who do men say that I am? Peter says, Some say you're, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're the great prophet. And he turns to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And that's the question we've been examining. Who is he to you? Who is he to me? I know we could give the correct answer if we had a quiz, but, but it's who is, he, who is he in your heart? Who is he in your daily life? Not just on Sunday morning, but who is he when the pressure's on? Who is he when the emergency comes up? Who is he in the middle of the night? Who is he... When, when you're struggling with your finances or your health or in your marriage or in other relationships. Who is he? Who is he to you then? Because that's who he really is to you. And the good news is he knows who he is to you, but he wants to challenge us to grow in our knowledge of him. We saw next that, that Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you didn't figure that out on your own, but my father revealed that to you. So we saw, we've studied that that's God's answer to the question. God gives you the quiz and then gives you the answer along with it. The challenge isn't knowing the answer. The challenge is living it out. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've looked briefly at what it means to be the Christ. We may still come back to that before we're done, but we've been spending all this time on the second part of that, that he, you are the Son of the living God. And what does it mean that He's the Son of God? Well, we've seen three things. First of all, it means it's a measure of how much God loves you, that God gave His Son's life in your place. He didn't give an angel's life. He didn't create some redeemer and then create him and give his life in your place. He took his own only son at that point, his only begotten son, and he gave his son's life up for you. We talked about the fact that the scriptures teach us that if you were the only one or I were the only one, this is a, you got to meditate on this sometime. If you were the only one that needed Jesus to come and to go to that cross, he still would have done it just for you. Say, how can you say that? Because Jesus taught a parable that supports that. It's the parable of the one lost sheep. There was a hundred sheep, and one of them wandered off. 
And the good shepherd left the 99 that were safe and went to rescue the one that was lost. See, economics, you know, uh, Harvard Business School thinking says, you know, you got 99 safe, don't risk the 99 because at least you got, you got 99% success rate. That's pretty good in anybody's book. But you see, to God's heart, that's not good enough. Till you all come to the unity, uh, to the knowledge of God and the unity. Till you all come. God's heart is that all be saved. God doesn't rest if there's one soul that's not saved. Because every soul, every person is that precious and important to him. He said, how can I be that precious and important? Because he's that big. And his heart is that big. The second thing we saw is that it means that God became flesh. And therefore, Jesus is God in the flesh. And what that means is the way you respond to Jesus is the way you respond to God. What you think of Jesus is what you think of God. What you say of Jesus is what you say of God. And what you obey of Jesus is what you obey of God. Jesus removes all the excuses. Because what we do when we think of God without Jesus is He's some general concept. And so we can mold Him to what we want. And that's what world religions have done. So you've got religions that have different ideas of what God is like. But God doesn't give us that option because He came and took on flesh and dwelt among us so that we could see who God is and how God talks and what God does. And then the third aspect, which is really a corollary of that, is that because Jesus is God in the flesh, Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we can know what God is like by seeing what Jesus was like. And that's one of the reasons the Gospels are so important. So we've spent these last really couple number of weeks looking at that. What did Jesus do? What would Jesus like? How was Jesus? And we saw that He was generous. We saw that He didn't hold things back. We saw that everyone, everyone that came to Him and asked Him received. Whether it was healing whether it was delivered, and there was some he delivered and healed that didn't ask him, but no one came to him and asked him, and he said no to. Oh, yes, there was the Syrophoenician woman, but in reality he was drawing her faith out because he did say yes to her. In fact, there's examples of where he said no and did it anyway. With his own mother, John chapter 2, the wedding in Cana, they run out of wine. I mean, (laughs) you talk about an unspiritual purpose. They ran out of wine at a wedding. And Jesus tells the master of the house to send, go ask my son what to do. He'll take care of it. Just like a mother, isn't it? She's proud of her son. Go talk to him. He'll solve it. And Jesus says, you know, woman, it's not my time yet to do miracles. And she says, go do what he says anyway. And then he did. He turned the water into wine. So there's a case where he said, no. And he still did it anyway. So what we've been looking at over the last few weeks is expanding this and looking at what this teaches us about the heart and the nature of God. The most important thing you need to know as a Christian is what God's like. Because it'll determine how you relate to Him. In those important scriptures where Jesus is talking about faith and talking about how to have your prayers answered. In Mark 11, 23 and 24 where he says, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe you receive them, when you, the, in what you, you shall have them. That's verse 24. Verse 23 says, if you speak into a mountain, tell it will be taken up and cast in the sea. As long as you don't doubt in your heart, but you believe that what you said shall come to pass, you shall have whatsoever you say. But the key to both of those verses is verse 22, which says, have faith in God. In order to have faith in God, you have to know what he's like. You can't have faith in somebody until you know something about them. And so we've been talking about what God's nature is. We look back in the Old Testament. We saw examples in the Old Testament of God, where God, instead of holding things back, was very generous. We saw Him dealing with the nation of Israel and the children of Israel and the frustration that He had as they went through the wilderness. And He wanted to do much more for them than they would let Him do. 
We saw then we went then over and began to go into the New Testament, and we saw where, where Jesus came to his own hometown. And the Bible says there he could heal, do no mighty works, because and he marveled at their unbelief. He wanted to do things they wouldn't let him do because they didn't believe that he in him, because they were restricted. They weren't restricted. They were they were influenced because they knew him when he grew up, and they couldn't form a new image of him. Did you hear what I said? They couldn't form a new image of him. They said, well, you're just the son of Mary and Joseph. We know who you are. That's why Jesus said, a prophet's not without honor. In other words, a prophet has honor wherever he goes except in his own hometown. Why? Because they knew him as a child. So they couldn't change their image of him, and as a result, they didn't have faith in what he would do. And some of us need to change our image of him. And that's what this is about. So we've gone through, we look, we've looked at scriptures in the New Testament. We've looked over in Matthew and saw how God's not holding things back. God wants to bless us. He said, ask and you'll receive. We looked at scriptures like that. We looked at things in the, and the key words we're using here is much more. He is a much more God. He's not a much less God. We saw that if he'd feed the lilies of the field, he'd feed the, lilies of the, field, he'd feed the birds of the air and clothe the lilies of the field, how much more will he take care of you? Amen. How much more value are you? Than the, than, the, than the creation that he's already taken care of. You are more value, much more valuable. And then we, last, we ended, not last week, but the week before, we ended in Romans chapter 8. Again, it talks about the, one of the most powerful verses, chapters in the Bible. We talked about how God, by his Spirit, does things we can't do for ourselves in our prayers. And that what he's done is he's literally made you to be his child. That the reason Jesus went to the cross was not just to for the, so, so that your sins would be forgiven and that you could get into heaven. That'd be, if that's all it was, praise God am I glad. But that's the beginning, that's not the end. He did that so that he could give you his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He gave you His own righteousness. But the reason He gave you His righteousness is so that He could qualify you for His Spirit to come and live inside of you. And we found the reason His Spirit comes to live inside of you is even better than that. It's so you could literally be His child, born of His nature. God didn't do the minimum. He's done the maximum. And you, you will enjoy the maximum to the extent that you allow him by believing it and then acting as if that's so. Well, we're, gonna, we're now getting into Ephesians because this is just full of these kinds of examples. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I think I told you to do that. And let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that by your spirit you're revealing yourself to us. We ask you now, Father, that your word says that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men all that you have prepared for those who love you, but they are revealed to us by your Spirit. So we call upon the Holy Spirit, who not only lives within each one of us, but is here among us, that he would open our eyes to see this morning the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus, and that you would begin to reveal to us more and more who you are and what you are like so that we may trust you more. And we thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll start in verse 3. I mean, this is so rich. This is, this is like eating chocolate cheesecake. I'll be careful. I'll lose some of you already. Blessed. Bless you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's the God... And He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with whatever spiritual blessings you need to get by. What? Then say that? Who's blessed us with some spiritual blessings? No. It says with every spiritual blessing. In other words, there is not a spiritual blessing that God's held back. Now notice who he's given this blessing to. Us. Us is you's and me's. <laughs> it's us's. It's not a select few. It's not ordained ministers. It's not the holiest of holy ones. 
all of us who are in Christ, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Say every. every. Say all. all. Say much more. more. See, God is the God of much more. He's not held anything back from you. With every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us. Notice what tense that is. That's past tense. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, that means He chose you. Before the world was founded, He chose you. He told His disciples in John 15, before He, before he went to the cross, you've got to understand, and this is, we need to understand, you need to know this, guys. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You didn't choose Jesus. He chose you. I said He chose you. He doesn't make bad choices. He's not fooled. You didn't trick Him. You didn't somehow slide in and He didn't notice you and now you're afraid He's going to discover what you're really like. This says He chose you and He didn't didn't choose you after you'd done six months probation as a Christian. He didn't say, all right, I'm going to let you in the kingdom of God for six months and let's see how you do. And if you measure up, I'll extend you and we'll eventually give you a permanent status. Now, you understand, he knows everything. He knows, knows every, he knew everything you, you did he knows everything you're going to do and He knew it all before the foundation of the world and He chose you before you ever did any of it. So you didn't fool Him. He's not surprised by your mistakes. Oh, I can't believe they did that. He knew it all. And He still chose you before you were ever born. chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. What? So that we would be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined, we talked about that before, that means planned before, us to adoption as sons. I was studying this early, actually it was last week. I was studying, uh, it was actually a Sunday morning while I was home, I was studying this, and I was so excited because I discovered that under, under the law at that time, that if you had a child that was born naturally to you, you could disinherit them. But if you adopted a child, you could not disinherit them. So if you adopted a child, you had to make a commitment to them. When you adopted them, they were yours forever, no matter what they did. They were entitled to a full inheritance, as if they were a child born out of your, from your body. But you could not disinherit them. You could not change your mind. God doesn't change His mind about you. You are adopted. You have been adopted as his child, as his son, as his daughter. That we should be holy and without blaming him, having been predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself, according, look at this, according to the good pleasure of his will. This was his idea. You didn't talk him in to accepting you. He had to convince you to accept Him. Now think about that. Because we're talking about what He's like. God, who's never failed you, never disappointed you, never will. God, who is righteous and holy, and with all justice and righteousness, would, has a right to turn His back on us. Because we've turned our back on Him. We've been unrighteous towards Him. We've said unrighteous things towards Him. We've had unrighteous thoughts towards Him. And He would be entirely just and righteous to turn His back on us. But He will not do that. He has not done that and He never will do that. 
because he hasn't acted justly and righteously towards you. He's acted mercifully towards you. He's not given us what we deserved. So stop asking for what you deserve. God, I want what I deserve. No, you don't. We want to see them get what they deserve, don't we? But we don't want God giving us what we deserve. And see, God wants us to act like Him, where we don't want them to get what they deserve either. But we want them to get the same mercy and grace that's been extended to us, and therefore God requires us to give them the same mercy and grace. That's why the Bible tells us this hard thing. Bless those that curse you. I don't want to. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those that spitefully use you. That means they purposely chose to hurt you. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't, oops, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. I mean, they purposely decided to use you. And Jesus says, pray for them. But he tells us why. So that you may be like your Father who's in heaven. Why? Because Jesus prays. He ever lives to make intercession. He prays for us. And there are times we use him also. I don't know why I'm off on this this morning. But he's been gracious and merciful in spite of what we've been like. It was his good pleasure. Think of that. It was his good pleasure. It was his will. This was you or his idea. It may not have been your parents' idea, but you were his idea. And to deliver you and to rescue you and to redeem you and to do what he's doing in your life brings pleasure to him. We're talking about what he's like. We're talking about his heart and his nature. It gets better. Look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of of His grace. See, you are in the, in the kingdom of God. God your, one of your purposes is to be His trophy. Down in our, in our basement where our, our youngest son's have, their bedroom is, there's a, go down there once in a while, pray down there, and there's, there's a, on their old dressers, there's their old trophies, their old basketball trophies and their old baseball trophies, you know. Every once in a while, I'll look at them and remember back to those days of sitting out in the freezing weather in, in, in the springtime, watching them in Little League Baseball and all those things. And, you know, it brings, it's apparent, it brings back those memories. Those are trophies, but those trophies are probably plastic, you know. They just sit there. They never move. But it's, it, a trophy is a, is, a, is, a, is a symbol of an accomplishment, isn't it? And you put it on your mantelpiece or display it somewhere so other people can look at it and see the reward, the, the honor you got for the accomplishments you made. Well, the Bible teaches that you are a trophy to Him. You are a trophy on God's mantelpiece. But you're not a trophy of your accomplishments. This is good. You're a trophy of what He can do in a mess like you and me. We're a trophy, a proof, a demonstration of what His grace can do in people that are weak and stumble. That's what it says. To the praise and the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. There's so many Christians out there trying to be accepted by other people because there's a hole inside. Because every human being has a, has a need and that need is to be accepted and to belong and to be important to somebody. 
to be part of something. That's what these connect groups are about. So that you can feel a part of something that's larger because it's hard to do that in a service like this, in a church of this size. But my Bible says that if you don't feel accepted by anybody else, you already are accepted by Him. You won't be accepted when you get to the end of your life and He looks back and sees all your accomplishments and decides whether to accept you. See, God doesn't decide every day whether to accept you or not. When you get up in the morning and you feel like four four miles of unpaved road, You ever get up and you don't feel saved? Oh, come on now. I hope I'm not the only one. And it feels as if God's light years away from you and you, mine, what did I do? This is why you've got to walk by faith in what God says and not by how you feel. So if you wake up some morning and that's how you feel, you need to go to Ephesians chapter 1. And say Ephesians chapter 1 says that I am accepted. Am accepted. Not will be. You already are accepted in the beloved. In Him. In Christ you are accepted right now. Not only that, we don't, it's not here, we don't have time to go there. He says you're also, you are complete in Him. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sin, now look at this, according to the riches of His grace. See, we measure where we are by other people. We measure our growth, our maturity by other people and by ourselves. We measure how God's going to treat us and what God's done for us by what, what we think He's like. And that's what we're talking about, what the Bible says He's like. But notice the terms that are used here. Verse 6 says, The pleasure of the glory of His grace He made you accepted. Verse 7 says, That we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, according to the measure of your efforts. It doesn't say that? But isn't that how we think? Well, I've been trying hard. Lord, I understand, you know, it's been a hard week and I've I've tried hard. I've tried hard. Hoping that somehow my trying is going to count for something. Well, Lord, my intentions were good. I just got distracted. Hoping that somehow my intentions are going to count for something. But notice what the Word says. The Word says that He did this according to the riches of His grace. So what He has used to redeem you and make you to be accepted, what He has used to make you His child and is using to bring you to a place of holiness and and a perfection in Christ, what He's using is the riches of His grace. Not yours. The riches, the wealth, all of the wealth, the extent, it's riches in terms of extent and in size and quantity, but it's also in terms of quality. It's God's best, His grace, the riches of His grace towards you. Now, the term rich is a relative term because it depends on who you're comparing it by, too. If you've ever been on the mission field, where we, some of the places we've been, every one of you, the poorest person in the room right now, is, is filthy rich in their eyes. Because in their eyes, to have a bicycle makes you I mean, you are the wealthy man in the community. Because in some of these villages we've been in, their houses are literally sticks, stuck in the ground, tied together one after another with leaves as their roof. One room. They all sleep in one hammock over a coal fire. 
when it's cold. You're rich compared to them. But if we put you next to Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, hmm. so rich depends on who you're being compared to. We're talking about God. We're talking about God. We're talking about God whose streets are paved with gold. It's His riches. This is measured by. And it's the riches of His grace. Well, that's great. Okay, Pastor. He's rich in grace. He's rich in grace. He's rich in mercy. But what good does that do me? Oh, I'm glad you asked the question. Verse 8, which he am made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. The New American Standard and the English Standard Version, I like it better, says which he lavished on us. So here God, with the riches of his grace, looks down on you in the, with the goal of, of conforming you to the image of his Son with the goal towards raising you up to live and walk in the holiness that he lives and walks in. Why? Because he adopted you as his child, as his son, as his daughter. So he wants you to grow up to be like him. That's his goal for you. Understanding what we're like, he has this wealth of grace available to us. So we're looking at how generous he is with this wealth of grace that he has. And verse 8 says, he didn't reach over and use an eyedropper to give you just what you need each day. Lamentations says that the, the mercies of God are new every morning. But how much mercy... And how much grace does he have available to you every morning? Is it a bro cream amount? Some of you don't know what bro cream is. It was in the 50s. It was a hair grease that made your butch hair stand up straight. And their expression was what? A little dab will do you. A little bro cream went a long way. And you could not get it off your hands and the towel. But it worked. It held your hair up. <laughs> it slicked it down. It held it up. It, wherever it, it was there. And a little dab will do you. And that's often what we think God gives us. So we go, and, and you know, I've told you before, the way you can discover what you think of God is to listen to your own prayers. Listen to what you tell Him as to why He should answer you. And we'll pray often, hoping God's going to get us through this situation. Hoping God can encourage us and, and strengthen us and get us through. Hoping God can give us just enough to get through. You cannot find that in your Bible. It's not in his character. It's not in his nature. This verse says that when you get up in the morning and you need more grace and more mercy, he's there to lavish it upon you. Amen. Now those in school of ministry have heard me use this example. When I was growing up, I was the oldest of five boys and we loved ice cream. But we didn't have it all the time. So when my mother went and brought ice cream home, she usually bring a couple of those half-gallon cartons. They didn't have the round things. They were cartons. And, and, and she'd bring it over and she'd dish it out, especially the vanilla ice cream. But then she, the, the best part was she'd go and get the, Hershey, the can of Hershey's chocolate. You know what those cans are like? Yeah. And she would do this. She had those, the old can opener. She'd go on one side and a little on the other side. You needed the little on the other side because without that it wouldn't come out the, the big one. So she'd take it, and, you know, she's got a can there, and she's got to, listen carefully, she's got to apportion it out because there's five of us. And so she puts some on this one. She puts some more on this one. 
and she just, you know, and she's got to have, and, and she was careful because, you know, you know, too much of that's not good for you, right, mothers and dads? And so she put, and then she's going to put the rest of it back in the refrigerator. She gave us just what we needed to give us that chocolate flavor to make the vanilla ice cream so much better. And that's often how we see God. That you're struggling in an area, you just really feel weak, you're just, you just, know, I'm ready to quit, and you hope God's going to give you enough. So you go to God, and you have images. He goes to his, he goes to his, his, his refrigerator, and he pulls out the can of grace, and he goes, and he looks down and says, well, that's not too bad. And he puts it back, and you got enough to get through today. But that's not what he says. He says he's lavished. That means God took his container of grace. See, here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go over to the can opener. (laughs) And just... That's what lavish means to me. That God doesn't just give what you need. He takes, because he's giving to you out of his heart. Not out of obligation. He's giving to you, providing for you, guiding you, protecting you, directing you out of his heart for you not out of obligation. If you read Jesus' relationship with his father, it's very revealing. First of all, they're talking about each other. Now, it doesn't say all the time, but that's kind of the impression you get. Because at least three times that I remember, the heavens open and God says... That's my boy. That's my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus would say to people, when they say, oh, good masters, no, no, no. I'm not the source of this goodness. It's my father who's in heaven. See, they had this mutual admiration arrangement. They're just in love with each other. And that's why Jesus said in John, he says, you know, if you love me, the father loves you. See, whatever you do to Jesus, he loves because he's his son. But God wants you in that same relationship with Him. That's what John 17 is all about. This isn't just Jesus and the Father anymore because you're in Christ. It's you and Jesus and the Father that we all may be one with Him and with each other. So it's a love relationship. So God, what He does for you, whether it's to hear you, answer your prayers, whether it's to comfort you, whatever it is, It's out of love for you, out of generosity for you. He can't help himself. He just loves you. So, well, I'm not experiencing all of that. Well, because of how you... But how do you see him? Is that how you see him? Do you really believe that that's what he's like? Lavished. Lavished. Well, let's go on. Let's go over to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You've heard me quote this so many times, but it is so profound. We're talking about the generosity of God's heart. Verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. That tells me that God has prepared things for you and for me that I haven't seen yet and you haven't seen yet. God has prepared things for you that you have not seen yet, that your eye has not seen and your ear has not heard, nor has it entered into your heart. Now, this is a great time of year to talk about this. 
because this is a time of year when parents, when children hope that there's things their eyes haven't seen. And they're hoping there are things that their ears haven't heard that maybe even haven't entered into their heart all that you have prepared for them on Christmas morning. When our children were younger, one of my great, our great joys was to, was to come up with a present that they may not have thought of. It was beyond what they thought they could get. And I still remember the joy because they used to do a little treasure hunt. So they didn't find it right away. And it was the joy I had of, of that moment when they went to the trunk of the car, wherever the final present was, and they opened and they went, oh, oh like that. Well, it was more than they thought. Oh, the th- I can still remember the thrill of that. Or a gift for my wife or something that was more than she thought. So, oh, and the look on her face. That's why you take pictures at those moments, isn't it? To bring back the joy you felt when you saw the joy on their face because the joy on their face gave you greater joy. That's what this is saying. God has already prepared for you things you haven't seen yet. You haven't even heard them yet. haven't entered your heart yet. Oh, it says, all that God has prepared for those who love Him and were called according to His purpose. Say, well, what good does that do? Well, look at the next verse, verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the depths of God. So the Spirit of God, and we've talked about this before, one of His responsibilities is to search out. Every time you open your Bible, every time you get to pray, get on your knees or however you pray, every time you're in a situation where you have a need, The Spirit of God, every time you open your eyes in the morning, the Spirit of God is down inside the heart of God, (laughs) searching to find your presence. My mother had five boys, and she would buy things all year. The problem was, she couldn't remember where she put them. So she had to go searching. And she'd go up in the attic and she'd have to close the doors. We weren't allowed anywhere near there. And she'd go searching in the attic trying to remember where she hid the special presence she had for us. Now, God has a much better memory than my mother. But the Spirit of God, the reason it's the Spirit of God that's charged with finding those is because that same Spirit dwells in you. So He is able to reveal to you all that God has prepared for you. But just think about it. God's prepared things for you. He, oh, He doesn't react to the situations you get in. And He doesn't react to your prayers. So that when you come and call out to God and cry out to Him and you plead with Him for something, God doesn't say, oh, okay, now we've got to go figure out what to do. Oh, no. He was already prepared for you before you came and cried out to Him. Remember when we were studying back in Moses and the children of Israel? When they finally cried out to God? He didn't then run and try to figure out what to do. We saw that He had already been preparing 80 years. The answer to their prayer, 80 years before they ever came to the place of crying out. Why? Because their eyes had not seen and their ears had not heard all the deliverance that God had for them, but He had prepared it for them. This morning, He has things prepared for you. Blessings, peace, joy, wisdom. Strength, whatever. God doesn't have different categories and say, you know, we looked at Jesus that way. He didn't have certain categories and say, well, you know, I'll I'll give you just things that are spiritually oriented. Because remember we saw what Jesus said, have you seen me? You've seen the Father. Because see, I grew up in churches, oh yeah, that's true, but it's just spiritual things. It's not, God doesn't care about our, our natural things in life. That's when we get to heaven that God provides those things. Well, I need it here. 
But I don't see Jesus doing that. I don't see Jesus saying, you know, I'm sorry, that's a physical need you have. Where do you get to heaven? I just came here to do a spiritual work. But see, that communicates, that comes from an image of God that he is above the natural material things of the earth. That somehow they're dirty or they're less important. Let me ask you a question. How important are your lungs right now? They're kind of important right now, aren't they? But who created all this? Who created this material realm? Who created the dirt? Who created the star? Who created all this? It was God's idea. And my Bible tells me when He created it, He passed judgment on it, and He said it is good. Most error, most heresy about about Jesus is that they're either trying to deny His divinity or to deny that He was a man because He was God that became a man. He was both God and man together. And what all religions that are not truly Christian, they're trying to take either the divinity away and make Him just a good man, a good prophet, or they're trying to make Him God and, and remove from Him the fact that God became a man. Because it's beyond man's grasp of what God could be like that God could be, take on this dirty human flesh. Why would He do that? Because He had to do it to rescue you and me. And so it's religion that teaches us that, oh yes, it's just, but it's spiritual thing. Well, it says spiritual blessing, but that means spirit given. He's not talking about heaven here. Because in heaven, we don't need the Spirit to reveal these things to us. Because you'll be able to see them. Jesus talked about feeding us. He said the birds of the air, they don't toil, they don't worry, and yet God feeds them how much more? Religion tells us that God's above all that. Yeah, but Jesus told his disciples, oh, this is good. Jesus was so spiritual that in that last supper, he did what they wouldn't do. He washed their feet, their dirty, smelly, dusty feet with whatever was stuck between their toes. I'm I'm just... Now listen to me. I said that for a reason, not to offend you. God. God. In the flesh was willing to wash between his disciples' toes. So even if it is dirty, this material realm, God is not above it. He's intimately involved in it. Religion wants to remove God from this natural realm because then we, all our excuses are gone. Well, God's above all these things. But it communicates something about Him as being distant and above everything. And it robs us of the intimacy, of the closeness, There's something about Jesus that people want to be close to him. John was, at the last meal, was because they didn't sit in chairs, they reclined kind of on their elbows on pillows. John was resting with his head on his shoulder. Jesus wouldn't say, wait a minute, I'm God. Let's clean me off here. He touched people. Touched a leper. He touched the untouchable. In their flesh. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 
Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We've got to know him as he is. Now here, we don't have time to get back to starting in verse 1. He's talking about, God. Paul is talking about an offering that the church at Corinth had received, had been collecting over a period of time, an offering to send to the saints that were needy. And in, in, um, in Paul says, I boasted of you in, in the north, Corinth is in the southern part of Greece, I boasted of you in Macedonia, that the, in the northern part of Greece. Um, and he said, um, he said, now I've sent some brethren to you to receive the offering so we can take it. Verse 6, then he says, But this I say to you, he who spoke, you know, we've heard this so many times, he who sows so sparingly will also reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, the first time I heard that, I thought, well, this is God's way of getting money out of us. Or, excuse me, the, the, the preacher's way of getting money out of us. You start hear, I start hearing those words, and my, I tighten up. They're going to ask for money. So, let, let, verse, so let, let's go back again. Who sows barely shall reap barely. Who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So that let each one give as God demands of him. That's not what it says. Let each one give as he purposes, as he purposes, as he purposes. Where? In his heart. Why? Not grudgingly or of necessity or obligation, for God loves a cheerful Giver. That's why we don't use the word. We don't. We don't collect the offering. To, to collect an offering means we turn each one of you upside down and shake it out of you. <laughs> we go in your pocket or your pocket purse and take it from you. That's not scriptural. It is an offering. It is an act of your will, giving to God out of your heart. So we're still talking about the heart. Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you having all sufficiency in all things. Now just listen to that. God is able to make all what? Grace. We just read about all grace, the riches of His grace. God is able to make all grace abound, lavished upon you. God's able to do that. Okay, that's half of it. Is He willing? He's able to make all grace. The grace here is talking about natural material things that you need. Because he's talking about sowing material things. He's talking about receiving an offering of natural material things. And now he's talking about this grace abounding from God to us. God's able to make natural things, finances, abound. Now, what's your vision? Is it, I hope God can get me through? I hope God can, I hope God, our bills can get paid this month? I mean, that's, you may need to start there, but God's vision for you is much more than that. Because He's not a God of how much do you need, He's a God of much more. Remember Abraham and God had the, all he was believing for was one child and God takes him out to expand his vision. I remember years ago the Lord was dealing with me, talking to me about this, and I, I said, "Well, Lord, you know, you know I, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want lots of stuff. I just need our, you know, our basic needs met." He says, "You're selfish." That kind of caught me up short. I'm selfish. I don't want much. It says, not only you're selfish, you're prideful. I thought that was pretty good. Lord, I don't need much to get by. He says, well, you may not, but there may be other people that do that I'd, put them, I'd throw, throw through you. All you're looking at is what you need is based on what, what, what I should do for you based on what you need. We need to think bigger because our God thinks bigger. He's able, able to make all grace abound towards you that you having all sufficiency in all things. All sufficiency. Not just sufficient. Sufficient is just enough. But all sufficiency in all 
Think. Look at your Bible. Does it say that? All sufficiency in all things. That you may have an abundance for every... Listen to the listen to the listen to the listen to the the, the, the generosity an abundance. This is what God's willing to throw flow through you. An abundance for every good work. As it is written, he who dispersed abroad and is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. He's talking about stuff. The material things of this world because that's the offering Paul's talking about. Now let's go to, back to Ephesians quickly. We'll end here. Chapter 3. Mm-hmm. God is a much more God. Not a just enough. Not much left. He is much less. He is a generous, abundant, super abundant God. And here we're going to see it. Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom every family in heaven and earth is named that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend or grasp with all the saints with all the saints. This is not a unique, a limited revelation. This is God's will is that everyone have this revelation that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Look at this. Whatever is needed. No. That you might be able to comprehend with saints the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. That you might know the full extent and to know the love of Christ which Passes your pea brain's ability to grasp it. That's what that means. Which goes beyond knowledge. His love. Now he's praying here that God would reveal something to us so that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints the extent, the boundaries of His love that you're not capable of understanding the boundaries of. So His love towards you goes infinitely beyond your uh, greatest ability you're ever going to have to grasp it. So whatever you need and whatever you're ever going to be able to understand in your greatest moment, it's infinitely bigger than that, His love towards you. It's amazing to watch some of these specials about physics and, and nowadays and the physics of the galaxies beyond our galaxies, beyond our galaxies. And I think, how do they know this stuff? How do they know this stuff? And I've been just kind of studying a little bit about Einstein's theory of relativity because there's, there's a facet of that that fascinates me because there's a sense in there that he had an understanding of something that God fits in that he may not have realized. But in the process of that, I realized most of what he came about didn't come about with scientific experimentation. It came about through mathematical calculations. He came to understand something that was beyond our ability of our telescopes to see it. And God's love just begins at that place. Holy, you got to go on because we got to end. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that being rooted, verse 17, being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able. So the Spirit of God is put in you so that you're able to do this. Because He's the one that came in you to reveal to you the things freely given by God. He's also into you with a responsibility of making you able of comprehending the boundaries that are beyond comprehension. And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled. I'm talking about God's heart. That you may be filled, look at this, with all the fullness 
of God. You ever known people that were full of themselves? God's will, not just His will, the purpose of the Holy Spirit in you is nothing short that God wants to fill you with all the fullness of God. He's not saying, I want to give you just what you'll take. He's not saying, I'm going to give you just what you're going to need to serve me. He says, I want to take all of me and put all of me inside of you. I'm not holding anything back. Say, is that possible? Well, look at the next verse. Now unto him, not you, now unto him, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. We're talking about God's nature, God's heart, God's generosity. God's saying, you think, you wonder whether this can happen? I'm able. He's not talking about whether you're able. I'm able, God says, to do not just what you can think or ask, but exceedingly, abundantly, beyond. There are three words there. In the Greek, they build on each other. So we'll start out with, I'm able to do beyond whatever you can think or ask. I mean, most of us will be happy just getting what we can think or ask. But God says, I'm able to do beyond what you can think or ask. All right, let's stop there because it's not over there. I'm able to do abundantly beyond. So you've got what you can think or ask here. That's where Abraham was. I, Lord, I need one child. God says, no, no, I can go beyond that. I can go beyond that. Oh, not only can I go beyond that, I can go exceedingly beyond that. But not only can I go beyond, exceedingly beyond, I flux right away, but I can go exceedingly abundantly beyond. What you can think or ask. Remember he took him out and said, Oh, you want a son? Ah, lie down here. I want you to look at the stars in the sky. So, see, Abraham says, I want a son. God says, All right, but here's how I'm looking at it. Seedingly, abundantly, beyond all you could think or ask. I'm talking about as numerous as the stars in the sky. From you, who could produce not one child, because her womb was dead, incapable of life. See, none of this says anything about you. God's not counting on what you can do other than He needs you to believe what He can do. Reinhard Bonnke is a missionary that God called to Africa. His vision for Africa is literally every soul saved. He had a vision of Africa being washed completely in the blood of Jesus. See, our mind keeps, well, that, 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 that can't happen. Why? It can't happen if we don't believe it can happen. We've got to start thinking the way God thinks. We've got to start thinking the way God thinks. We think too small because we think in terms of what we can do or what we deserve instead of in thinking in terms of what God one is able to do because he'll do exceeding, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. Now notice the rest of the verse. According to the power that works in us. So that dream and vision is not just in heaven, 
It's not that God's looking over the banister of heaven and said, I want to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you're going to ask or think, but I'm not sure how I'm going to get it to you. No, that power is in you right now. The reason it's not flowing out of us is because we don't believe it yet. Because we don't see that. Why would God do something like that through me? Because He is a much more God. He wants us to think in much more terms, not much less terms. He wants us to think in terms that He thinks in. I'll end with this. Isaiah says, God says through Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. Well, that's what religion teaches us. But the rest of it says, For my thoughts are higher your thoughts, and my ways are better than your ways. But notice, just because His ways are higher and better doesn't mean we can't have them because they're revealed to us by His Spirit. Who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh that came to reveal to us what His Father is like so that we could begin to do the works that Jesus did and greater works, not less. And that's because we are His body in the earth today.